in Cape Town. Uh, Steve Daw can attest, is Steve brave for sure. When I get in trouble, when I need a, a shoulder to cry on or someone to pray for, uh, I reach out and they're there uh, to bear me up. Um, and I'm not alone. My wife, uh, Christina, is sitting in the back. She's with me in Cape Town with our three daughters, Anna, Sarah, and Katie. Um, but Anna's still in South Africa. She just got married to a South African. So now South Africa is where she lives. And my son, John, is our oldest. We have four children, and John is married to Rebecca, and he lives here in St. John's. So our family is um, in the two different worlds now. Africa and uh, Newfoundland. So we've been serving in Africa uh, since 2012. So how did I get to Africa? Well, before that, I was um, hearing God's call in my life to serve um, and actually to, to teach. So my passion is to see people equipped for God's ministry. That is my passion. That people would have the skills, that people would have the uh, ability, and that people would have the resources to be able to shine God's light, the light of the gospel, where they're serving and where they're ministering. And so by God's grace, I've been able to see and be part of some amazing things in different places in the world and still continue uh, to do that. You know, being involved in theological education is an amazing thing. You know, it's one thing for a pastor to stand up in front of a congregation on a Sunday morning and preach God's word and minister to the people, but the privilege of those who are actually called to teach the ones that are doing the preaching and doing the ministry day by day, that is a privilege, it's an honor, it's, 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 um, it's, it's something that's wonderful if you're able to do that, but, but uh, not many people ha- have been equipped to do that. So I'm very thankful that God has um, seen fit to allow me to serve in that way, and it's a privilege to see then, when I go and see uh, people that I've trained to be teaching and preaching and ministering God's word in a variety of different contexts and places, it's such an amazing thing. You know, Operation World identified discipleship as the greatest challenge for the church in Africa and the leadership training as the critical bottleneck. So I want you to, to, to keep that in mind when I just share briefly about what we've been doing. Um, we take for granted a lot of things in North America. The fact that we can study, the fact that we have the resources that, that we can use to be able uh, to do ministry, to help us to do ministry, those things are not available to all people the same way. So uh, seven years ago, uh, Calvary, after I had finished my doctoral studies, after I was actually ordained from Calvary, and I think I believe I was also the first intern. David, you can believe that. I actually interned at Calvary. Um, and was, was sent out to Zambia um, at, to serve as the academic dean at a, the Evangelical University in Andola. Um, that's a, a school that's part of the Evangelical Fellowship, 260 organizations. And so they send uh, people there who are training to go into ministry. And, and the people that you meet and the ones that have been blessed and privileged to be able to teach you know, it's amazing. Uh, I taught a master's class. I think there was the head of two denominations and several people that are teaching in other theological colleges. Um, those type of opportunities you don't come across every day. The people that you're able to touch who then go out and make differences in many people's lives. So for four years, we served in Zambia. Um, Christina and the girls were involved also at the school and, and uh, with the students, but also working in the community, in orphanages, and, and helping in the community there as well. We're, we're part of, uh, of the place and the people where we're serving. But uh, three years ago, God called us to leave there and go to South Africa. So I was serving as the academic dean at the Bible Institute, which meant I was overseeing the faculty, overseeing the teaching, overseeing the programs, helping the students, teaching the students. And um, our time at uh, BI has come to an end now as we've returned. So why are we here? We're here because our visas are up. (laughs) We need a new visa. So tomorrow morning, we're all getting on the plane. I just booked, uh, uh, confirmed our seats, and we have to appear in person. They want you to appear in person. So Katie and Sarah and Christina and I are flying tomorrow to appear at the High Commission of South Africa on Tuesday morning. So we really appreciate your prayers for that. Um, the last two missionaries from SIM who applied had their visas rejected. 
But this is in God's hand, and so we believe God is calling us to this ministry, and we believe that God will grant our visas. So we do appreciate your prayers uh, that, that God would be at work there. And when we return to South Africa, Lord willing, I'll be taking up a new position at the South African Theological Seminary, also known as SATS. Some of you might be familiar with that. It's a very large institution. They told me they have about uh, 3,200 active students, even uh, 150 almost doctoral students and other master's students and, and uh, bachelor's students and people in other programs. Um, and I've been helping with SATS actually for about five years now. Um, supervising students and, and helping to assess uh, uh, proposals, research proposals on that type of thing. So I'm really looking forward to being able to use my gifts at that school. And uh, God has clearly opened up a door in an amazing way for service there. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see what God is going to do there. But what I want to say to conclude this part of what I wanted to share is that ministry is a partnership. Right? You have to remember that. Ministry is a partnership. Every day when I am in South Africa, I get up in the morning, I put my socks on and the rest of my clothes, and I go to work or do what I'm going to do. Christina gets up in the morning, she goes to serve at Itemba School with the kids. Those are things we don't do on our own. This is a partnership. Ministry is a partnership. It's the prayers and support of those of you here and other places around the world that sustain us, that allow us to do what we do. Ministry is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle here. Just the same, it's a spiritual battle where we serve. And we serve in a place where we're not from. There's differences. And, you know, when, when um, God's word is going forth and lives are being changed and transformed, Satan doesn't like to see that. Yeah, so there's always going to be opposition. Opposition of a different forms that you would not normally see in the world. So I want to tell you that your prayers are important for us. It sustains us. It helps us in the battle. The battle is real. So I would ask you to consider, many of you are new. We don't know you so well. Take some time and, uh, and uh, I'll have a coffee with anyone. <laughs> So we can get together. I'd love to share and talk about what's, what God is doing and get to know you more. So if you'd like, uh, my daughter Sarah will also be at the back. Just give her your email if you'd like to get our newsletter. Then you can learn a little bit more about what God is doing in our lives in South Africa and how you can become part of that. And, uh, and that is an exciting, an, an exciting thing. You don't have to be on the front line, but you can be part of the battle and actually be supporting us as we serve in South Africa. So I have only hinted, but the background and the idea for the sermon comes from this notion of spiritual warfare and the, the realities of what happens when we try to bring the gospel into the world. There's going to be opposition, and it's going to be spiritual, and it's going to be real. I remember many years ago, um, the, the person, I could say our mentor in SIM, he shared with me, after we got to Zambia, mind you, <laughs> that he said, the worst place that he's seen where, this, where Satan attacks the most is in the Bible colleges and the seminaries. Why? Because think about it, it's very strategic. If you can affect the place where people are being trained for ministry, then you can ruin the ministry for generations to come. And I've seen that in two countries already, firsthand, up close and personal, uh, where these things are happening like I've not seen before. You know, before I went into ministry, I, ser I worked uh, in a secular world in a computer job. I, I did a lot of uh, really interesting things at uh, high levels and uh, was involved with companies, big companies, small co I've not seen the like of what happens in these small herb Bible colleges. It would not happen in the secular world. Um, and it's unusual. You know, we, we have to expect opposition when we bring the light of the gospel into the world. Um, when uh, Calvary is looking through mile one mission to bring the gospel, to plant churches. You need to expect to face opposition. Because the, the Satan doesn't want a church and kill bride. That's the last thing he wants, right? He doesn't want that. You need to be prepared, and you need to expect this. 
So I'm going to open with a quote from Sun Tzu. Probably you haven't heard a lot of sermons opened by uh, Sun Tzu, the art of war. <laughs> but he says simply, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. I think that's obvious. <laughs> so I'd like to speak to you this morning from First John chapter 4. And I know you heard a sermon last week from First John. Um, but uh, this is going to be a little bit more thematic. I'm going to use First John 4, um, but I'm going to be also referring to some other passages uh, to deal with this issue of dealing with deceivers. So very quickly, First uh, John is not real. It's a letter, but it's not really a letter. It's a sermon that was designed to be read, to be uh, preached, uh, to be spoken. And John, in this uh, book, he's writing to believers, and he uses simple but powerful uh, language, vivid imagery, simple things to, to communicate the message that he's trying to bring across. And what he's trying to bring across is a very simple thing. Uh, think about the imagery of light and darkness. On one side we have light. He's urging his audience to love each other, but he hints on the other side of the darkness. He says in chapter 2, verse 26, he's writing concerning those who would try to deceive the church. This is a twofold thing. It's knowing yourself. It's uh, knowing your enemy. Uh, those who would deceive the church, he repeats it in 3.7. It builds all the way up to chapter 3, verse 24. The one who keeps God's commands lives in them, in him and he in them. This is how we know that he lives. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So the beginning of this sermon, uh, this sermon I found to be a little bit awkward uh, to prepare and also to preach. So I want to just take a moment and pause so that we don't assume certain things. I want to ask the question this morning, do you belong to God? Because he's writing here in 1 John, contrasting the light and the darkness. What does it mean to belong to God? Well, he told us in the verse I just read, we know it by the spirit he gave us. So quite simply, we can ask ourselves, does God's Spirit live in you? Does God's Spirit live in you? And the corollary to that, I have a math degree, corollary to that, <laughs> is does your life show that God lives in you? Because if God's truly living in you, then uh, you should see it, and those around you should see it by, by how you live and what you're doing. You know, we sang a lot of songs, and we're going to sing a song at the end. Uh, Jesus, Messiah, right? We all come into this world, and we all have problems. What's the problem that we have? We're not in a right relationship with God. God does not live in us. His Spirit is not in us. Why? Because of who we are and what we've done. We've wandered away from God. It's the problem of sin. It's the problem of, of what's inside of us. And that's why we needed a Messiah. What is a Messiah? It's a someone that God sent to do something very special. He sent his son, who is very God, the son of God, to come into the world to save us from our sins. Our sins deserve punishment. We deserve to be separated from God. We were, in fact, enemies of God. Enemies of God. And while we were still enemies, that's when Jesus came and died so that we, by faith, could receive forgiveness and receive forgiveness because of what Jesus did. By faith, we could receive eternal life. We can receive eternal life, not because of anything we did, but because of what Jesus did. And when you think about this special thing, I say this morning, if God's Spirit is not living in you this morning, then you should take First John and read it and pray and ask God to show you how his spirit can live in you. It's quite simple. It's by faith in Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross. Now, for those of us who have been redeemed, who have a faith in Jesus this morning, can I get an amen from those of you who know that Jesus lives in you, that his spirit is inside of you? Amen. Yes. Now, the topic for this morning's sermon is going to focus on us uh, this morning. And it has to do with a spiritual warfare. Once we received God's Spirit by faith, you know, we think that the church could be a safe place. 
we think we come into church on a Sunday morning or we meet together during the week or we have friends and we're, we're getting along. This is a safe place for us. It should be a safe place where we can share with each other, we can support each other. If we're struggling, we can care for each other. If someone's, you know, has a problem, we can lift them up. If someone's rejoicing, we can celebrate with them. True? It should be like that. So it's easy to let our guard down. Yeah, because this is a place where we feel like we can trust. Feel like we can trust. But the New Testament is full of warnings. Full of warnings about what can happen in the church when deceivers come in and start to cause problems. That's the problem that we faced at the Bible Institute in a very real and difficult way. It's a problem that can happen in, in churches. It's a problem that can happen here. So I don't want you to be unaware. That's why I'd like to speak about this subject this morning, dealing with deceivers. So I'd like us to read 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'd like it if we could uh, stand together as I read, and then I'll pray, and then we will hear what God has to speak for us. So, so let's stand together as I read from God's word, and hear the words of John, um, as communicated to him by the Spirit. And this is what he says to the church that he's writing to. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it is powerful and it is living and it speaks to us even right now. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Help us to consider this difficult issue that we may dismiss, ignore, or not want to think about, Lord, but, but that is real. And Lord, as, uh, as I speak, empower me, Lord, help remove my awkwardness and, and my stumbling and help me to speak clearly to communicate what you would have for your church here this morning. I pray these things for your glory in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So let me set the context here with a few observations, and I'm going to consider the four points about how you can identify a deceiver. How you can identify a deceiver. So let me begin with just a few quick observations. First of all, what are we talking about here? He talks about spirits. Don't believe every spirit. And that's a carryover from the end of chapter 3. Is he talking about spirits? Is he talking about people? Well, in this context, he's talking about people. He calls them false prophets, later in verse 1. False prophets. So I want you to note from that that this is a real-world problem. It's not just a spiritual problem, which would be bad enough, right? But this is a, this is a, a problem that is in the world that you're going to actually be able to get face-to-face -face with. This is a problem that will happen to you in this world. People. Some people. Secondly... I want you to notice that this is a big problem. It's a big problem. Again, we tend to dismiss these things, but this is a big problem. Why? Because he says many false prophets. Many false prophets. Now, that is a scary thought, isn't it? These are real people, and there's many of them. Many of them that want to go out and cause problems in the church. Many of them. And the third thing, which can be difficult for me, and probably for you, if you're a trusting person like me, like I said, especially in the church where we like to embrace each other, is that actually John tells us we also need to be skeptical. Not to be naive, but to be skeptical. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. 
test them. So what I gather from that is we need to also be thinking critically, not to have our eyes closed, but to be skeptical enough to think through what's happening around us, to think these things through. Now, the topic this morning is difficult, like I said. It's a difficult subject. How to identify a deceiver. So as I mentioned from Sun Tzu, it's not just enough to know yourself. We need to know who we're dealing with. I believe what he said is true. So John is calling us to this very thing, to tell us how you would identify uh, someone who's uh, a deceiver. And the four characteristics that I gather from this passage, which I'd like to discuss now, are this. First, they're not from God. Second, they have been conquered, although it won't seem like it. They have been conquered, although it may not seem like it at the time. Third, they are believable. They are believable. And finally, they've wandered from the truth. So they're not from God. They've been conquered, but it may not seem like it. They're believable, and that they've wandered from the truth. So the first point is this. Deceivers are not from God. I mean, that may seem to be an obvious point, but we need to to make it here. Deceivers are not from God. He says, John says in verse 1, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Verse 4, he says, dear children, you are from God, have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And then he says, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. So, so think about what John's saying here. Us, I'm presuming none of us are deceivers here, but we don't know that yet. You can identify yourself after the service on the way out. (laughs) Okay? But in all seriousness, we have to assume that each of us is one of the dear children. You know, and that's a very special thing, how John is so endearing as he refers um, to his church, his dear children. He assumes that they are from God. They are God's dear children and his dear children as well. So if we in the church are God's dear children, then those who are opposing are not from God. They're not from God. So this, don't get uh, confused. I'm not talking about a theological dispute between Christians. You know, you know we may believe this and someone else believes that, but we're, we're still believers. We, we don't want to start calling people who have a, a different view about certain theological viewpoints deceivers, okay? <laughs> don't we need to run out here and start saying, you, you guys are all deceivers, you're not even from God because you don't believe the same thing that I believe. No, please. <laughs> right? that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. This isn't just an in-house discussion between fellow Christians. He's talking about a fundamental difference between those who are from God and those who aren't. But the danger is the deceivers are in the church and they pretend to be from God. They're in the church, and they actually pretend to be from God. Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 11. He said, such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Do you see the seriousness of the situation? I'm saying the deceivers are not from God, but what? They're going to have a mask on, and they're going to look just like everyone else. You won't just be able to tell by looking at them that they're not from God because they're pretending to be just like everyone else in the church looking like you and me. So we need to realize that they're actually not from God. They're not from God. The whole message of John in his letter is this message of love that God loved us and that we therefore need to be obeying the command of Christ to love each other. But in 2 Timothy 3, Paul, and that's a very important passage on this subject, 2 Timothy 3, Paul, the first characteristic he says about those who are opposing, lovers not of God, but of themselves. Of themselves. They're not from God. They actually just love themselves. So a deceiver wants you to think that they're like you, that they're seeking to follow God, when in fact they are not like you and they're not like me. They are not from God, but they're out for themselves. And that, my friends, is a scary thing. Uh, Second point, not just that they're not from God, 
it's this. They have been conquered, but it won't seem like it. What do I mean by that? <laughs> what do I mean by that? Have you ever been in a market where they take a chicken and they chop the chicken's head off? What happens to the chicken? Daniel, you should know. Uh, but it doesn't act like it's dead, right? I saw a story in the news where <laughs> in some market, they, they, the poor chicken, they chopped the chicken's head off, but the headless chicken stayed alive for a week. <laughs> they were feeding it. <laughs> like, the poor chicken didn't realize the game was over. <laughs> the game was over. It lost, but it didn't admit it. It was still going. Um, have you heard about the Battle of the Sinkhole? The Battle of the Sinkhole. You're not brushing up on your... It's, this is from the War of 1812. No one? No? Okay. Um, I didn't know either, but I just Googled it up. Um, so the Battle of the Sinkhole was fought in Missouri three months after the War of 1812 ended. <laughs> okay? So, like, the war was over. Yeah? But the message never got through to those people out wherever that sinkhole was in Missouri. And they were still fighting. Why? Because the battle was over. Uh, they lost, or they won, depending on which side, but the battle was over. They didn't realize, and they kept fighting. Like, isn't that a sad thing? It would be tragic to die in that battle, any battle, but especially one where the war was already over. <laughs> um, now, when it comes to the deceivers in the church, they are like the headless chicken. They are like the soldiers on the losing side in the battle of the sinkhole. The problem is the message never got through yet. So you, dear children, John says in verse 4, are from God and have overcome them. Have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We are more than conquerors in the church. Amen? I'm not in Zambia. We are, <laughs> we are more than conquerors in the church. Amen. Yes, we are. We are. We have, through Christ, defeated sin, defeated death. We don't have to be afraid of anything. Do we? What is there as a believer that you have to be afraid of? If you get a bad news tomorrow, do you need to be afraid of that? No, because Jesus has conquered and we are in Christ and come what may, death, d destruction, whatever the worst thing you can imagine can happen, we are in Christ and we don't have to be defeated because Jesus has already conquered and we are from God and we have overcome because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. So if someone is opposing the church, if someone is opposing Jesus, these deceivers are already conquered. Yeah? They're already vanquished. They're already defeated. It's like the Leafs before every hockey season starts. <laughs> and I'm a Leaf fan. I'm speaking from experience. Right? You know, some people don't recognize that. The, the battle is over. So what's the problem? Why is John writing about a problem where the battle's already over? If they've already been conquered. It's because they don't realize the battle is over. Our opponents don't realize they've already lost. They continue to fight. They continue to oppose. The battle rages on. Now, like I gave the illustration of the war, I gave the illustration of the chicken, <laughs> right? Remind yourself of this. I told you at the beginning, I showed you what John said. John said there are many of them, right? And they're continuing to fight. And they're fighting against us from the inside. Okay? So we are called to continue to fight the battle, even though we know we've already conquered in Christ. So we know we have confidence that Jesus is conquered uh, sin and death and we have overcome. But there are many that still oppose even within the church and we need to fight against uh, this because they're fighting against us from the inside. Right? Uh, listen to what Paul says to his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy, he says, I'm giving you this command and keeping the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. Yeah, fight the battle well. That is the call of the Christian faith, that we, in this world, continue to fight the battle well, even though we're already conquerors. And he says... Uh, 
in 2 Timothy uh, talks about people with depraved mind who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, but they will not get very far because as in the case of those other men, their folly will be clear to everyone. These people are out there. They're foolish because they've already lost, but they're in the church and they're opposing. And at the time, they don't realize that they've been conquered. And Paul reminds us that they're not going to get very far, but we need to fight the battle well. We need to be vigilant. So two things I can take from this to encourage you on one hand, that we are conquerors in Christ. We don't have to fear. Yet on the other side, the deceivers continue to fight. So we need to be vigilant. So the deceivers have been conquered, but they're continuing to fight. Now, third, thirdly, deceivers are believable. Now this one may again take you some time to actually realize what's happening. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. And the world listens to them. And I would even go so far as to say, not just the world listens to them, but if we're not careful, even in the church, the church will listen to them. And again, I'm speaking from very close personal experience here. The world will listen to them. Fellow believers will be deceived and listen. And we'll get into that in a second here. So, so um, I want you just to, to picture this. Like, have you ever gotten in an argument with someone where you know you're right? You're absolutely right. Yet you can't convince the other person of the truth of something? Even when they're patently wrong? You're all familiar with that situation, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe you could see it easily in a religious context in, in a cult, right? You try to talk to someone who's in a cult, there's no convincing them because they don't want to, to listen. They, they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear. But even in regard to the gospel, think about this. To the outside world, what does, how does Paul characterize the gospel? You know, when we come to faith in Jesus, we see the world differently and we realize, you know, who we are. We realize uh, what God has done for us and our relationship changes and we, and we see ourselves and God in a different way, in, a, in the right way, in the good way. But before we become believers, before God's Spirit lives in us, to the Jewish people who had the law, who knew God from the outside, Paul says the gospel is a stumbling block, right? So the truth they're not going to be persuaded by. But what about the people that didn't have all the background of, uh, of the law in the Old Testament, the Gentiles? Paul says that's the gospel right there is a foolishness. Foolishness, right? So you try to go up to someone and explain to them the gospel. If, if God's spirit is not working in them, they're going to think the gospel is just what? Foolish. Now you and I know different. We could spend a day, week, month, year, ten years, the rest of our lives trying to explain to someone that Jesus loves them and who they are, and, and that they need um, they need a savior. And what God has done and, and God's love, they're going to think you're foolish. They're going to think you're foolish. So, so if we look at outside of the church. Yeah, okay, we can understand someone from outside of the church may disagree with us. Yep, can be a stumbling block, the gospel is foolishness. But when the problem now becomes inside the church and we're dealing with the deceivers in the church, in here, it becomes very, very more insidious and difficult. Okay, uh, Paul, again, writing in the Second Timothy 3, talks about these type of deceivers. He says, it's the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to knowledge of the truth. Just as Genesis and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. So, so what he's talking about here is the different ways that uh, people are deceived. And think about the level at which the deception can happen. You think about someone who's sitting at home quietly all by themselves, you know, and uh, the deceiver will come along and convince that person of their way of thinking and deceive them, right? So the poor, quiet person who's kind of on the sideline, but, the, but it's not, okay? So the deceiver will be working against them. 
but also the deceiver can be working against leaders in the church as well. Leaders, like Janus and Jambres, uh, the apocryphal figures who oppose Moses, right? Um, these teachers oppose the truth. These teachers oppose the truth. These pastors oppose the truth. These seminary lecturers actually oppose the truth. Now remember I told you at the beginning they're not from God, but they look like they're from God. They have a mask on. By all uh, accounts, you would look at the person and say, fantastic, this person is fantastic. You know, they're teaching uh, God's word and whatnot. But underneath of that, they're actually opposing the truth. It can happen in a corner, in a home. It can happen from a pulpit in a church. It can happen in a classroom, in a seminary. Okay? And they're masquerading. So do you see how difficult the problem is? This, again, I told you, is a real problem. People in your church can be a deceiver. People even around you today could be a deceiver. And you yourself may have, even at some point, or possibly even today, have fallen prey to someone who is a deceiver. Now, I told you that um, the really scary thing on this point is that they're believable. They're believable. Yeah, I don't want to get too personal, but I was, I've been in meetings recently where a room of uh, more than a dozen people and only myself and one other actually knew what the truth of something was and we could not convince anyone and I spent months trying to convince. There's no convincing because they won't listen to. And from the smallest of the small to the, to the greatest of the great, it doesn't matter who um, you would talk to, they would be deceived and they would not listen to me. Hmm? So these things can happen to you as well. So that's why what? We need to be on our guard because deceivers are believable. People will easily believe their lies. Okay? So we need to take this seriously because you don't want to be one of the deceived. You don't want to be one of the deceived. Now, my last point is this. Deceivers have wandered from the truth. Wandered from the truth. This is a point that is actually a little bit shocking uh, to me. It's a little bit shocking. If you have an NIV, you'll see... um, We'll read verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Spirit of truth, spirit of falsehood. I think in the ESV it says the spirit of truth and the spirit of what? Error. Right? Spirit of truth, spirit of error. So, if I was reading this verse and I didn't get to the end, I said they recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of, okay, what's the opposite of truth? Error, falsehood, something like that, right? True and false, fairly logical. But the interesting thing is, um, what John is talking about is actually more subtle than that. He just doesn't come out and say actually false. uh, And it's a very subtle word that he uses, which is not exactly error, which we can get to. Uh, I I want to paint you a picture here. Uh, Listen to what Jesus says in Mark before his crucifixion. Jesus was leaving the temple. One of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone will be left here uh, on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting in the Mount of Olives opposite his disciples, Peter, James, and John said privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign? Now that they're all about to be fulfilled, Jesus says to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. You must be on your guard. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus doesn't say, watch out for the false, for the error, for the false teacher. Watch out for the one who deceives you. Watch out for the one who deceives you. Okay? What the word that John uses in chapter uh, 4, verse 6 of 1 John is not a word that just means false. It has to do with a deceptive falseness. Um, How many of you uh, look up at the stars in the night and can identify the stars in some of the planets? Anyone? I know the Big Dipper. 
And uh, since we moved to um, the Southern Hemisphere, I can identify the Southern Cross sometimes, if I'm lucky. Yeah, that's the extent of it. And sometimes I think I see a planet, but it's probably just an airplane or something that's moving and it's got a streak. Um, So I don't really know, but early astronomers, because they thought that the Earth was the center of the universe, right? Yeah? They look up at the planets, and they could follow the planets, but the planets moved in a strange kind of a way. They couldn't figure out why they move like that. Do you know why the planets move like that? Because we're not at the center of our solar system. The sun is, right? Now, if you look at the the orbit of a planet from the perspective of the sun, it makes sense, right? But when you're on Earth, and you're going like this, and the other planet is going like that, then when we see it, it's going like this in the sky, right? So, you know where the word planet came from? It's from a word that actually has to do with wandering, right? Like planets are wanderers in the sky. (laughs) They just kind of move around, and we can't make sense of where they came from and where they're going when we look at it like that. Now, the word that he uses here is related to that, but it has a negative connotation. It's a a wanderer, but but in the one who would like try to deceive you. Okay? Does this make sense? So the opposite of truth that John's talking about is not just a lie. It's a deceitful lie that would lead you away from the truth. It's not strictly an opposite. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a deceit built into it. Okay? There's, there's, it starts with truth, but it ends up in a lie. It's not a good thing. It's a very subtle. So again, who is the deceiver? The deceiver is the one who possibly even began in the truth, but is now wandered away from it, and now is seeking to deceive people, but also has been deceived themselves. Okay? Do you see that? They themselves have actually been (laughs) deceived. And uh, there's nothing subtle about this stuff. I have an illustration, and then I'm going to tell a personal story. The illustration, this is my classical knowledge here, bear with me, is about uh, Homer and Odysseus, and an early commentator writes about Achilles. See, we all know about Achilles and the heel, right? Achilles' heel? Well, Achilles apparently was a real deceiver, okay? And this guy says, Achilles, he was a cheat, he was a plotter, okay? (laughs) He said, this guy was so bad, (laughs) he wanted to prove he was more clever than another guy and deceiving him on notice with difficulty, okay? So Achilles is such a deceiver and a liar that he dared to contradict himself in the presence of this other guy and, and the other guy didn't even notice. Like, they're so brazen, if you meet a deceiver, they will lie to your face and not even blink. They will try to trick you and not even care. I was in a meeting with a witness, with a guy, and when we took a break, and I think it was possibly even on a recording, this guy uh, said something which was really wrong what he had done, and it proved a point that there was collaboration between uh, two people that should never have been talking. And he even quoted the other guy, okay, <laughs> to make his point. And I said, thank you for saying that, so now I know what's going on, right? And he said, say back to me, I never said that. <laughs> when I had a witness, and I think it was on a recording, and I'm not sure if the attorney was still in the room. Okay, uh, do you see what I'm saying? He didn't even miss a blink. He didn't even care. He's a teacher, <laughs> in school, and he didn't even seem to care notice that he had lied and yet would be so brazen like Achilles in the face of Odysseus that he would lie and then say that he hadn't. That is a deceiver. Someone who's wandered from the truth is so dangerous that they think that they're going to get away with it, that, uh, that, that they can't be caught. They'll do it right in your face and you don't even notice. That's why I thought it was important to preach uh, from this passage this morning, right? Because most of us would say, I'll never be deceived. True? I'm too smart for that. I'm a good Christian, right? Well, that would never happen in our church, okay? But that's why Jesus warns his disciples against uh, being deceived. That's why John's writing the church about not being deceived. That's why uh, Timothy uh, is being told by Paul in 2 Timothy 3 about the deceivers and what they will do. So we have to pay attention to this message. Whether you want to believe me or not, 
please hear the words of the Apostle Paul. He talks about what he has done in 2 Timothy 3. You know my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, and all the things that happen. He even says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving and being deceived. So he characterizes the deceivers, I would say, in two categories. Evildoers and imposters. Evildoer is, I think, actually, it's, it's more strong than that. It's a, someone who is evil. Okay, It's not just that they did a few bad things. They don't just do evil occasionally. They are bad people. Okay, But imposter is an interesting word. And the history of the word... I love, I get into these things, so bear with me, but it's an interesting story, okay? Imagine back in the old days, there was someone who could do magic. You would think they could do magic, right? Okay? And then, so that the word originally meant some kind of a wizard. But then as time went by, is there such people generally that can just do magic? No. So people, the word began to change meaning uh, to someone who claimed to be a magician or something, but wasn't really. And finally, by the time we get to the time when, when um, Paul's using it here, this word just means someone who's a flat-out liar. Like, <laughs> like, you know, like we don't, when we get old enough, we don't believe in Santa Claus, right? <laughs> so when he's talking about evildoers, these are just evil people, actually, but imposters are someone who, yep, I'm a magician, see me here, or I'm a Christian, look at me, when in fact it's a complete lie and everyone should actually know that it's a lie. Okay? Now what characterizes this person who's going to be an imposter? It's someone who's deceiving and someone who's being deceived. Someone who's being deceived. Now a long time ago I was studying Second Timothy and I couldn't understand the part about being deceived. Right? Because you think about a deceiver. A deceiver is someone who's going to try to trick you, right? But the deceiver themselves also has been tricked. Yeah? So this really stood out to me. Um, my daughter was sitting in a room with um, a couple of people, and it was a bad situation, and she told me the story after. Um, and this one person, was a, one person was in a position of authority to act, and they hadn't acted at all when they should have. And, and, the, and the, the girl that uh, Sarah was with said, so, you know, why didn't, why didn't you help me? Why didn't you protect me? Why didn't you do this? You know his exact words, which he said was, I was deceived. I was deceived. This person had been going around deceiving many people, but claimed himself that he was deceived. So look at that verse there. Is that not interesting? Deceiving and a being deceived. Deceiving and being deceived. So, the, you know, the deceiver has wandered from the truth so badly that they've allowed themselves to believe a lie, and now they are going to impose that on you and on me, or they're going to try to. They deceive, but they themselves have been deceived. So I want us to look at how how have they wandered from the truth? In what ways do they wander from the truth? So in First John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you can see one way people wander from the truth is in theology. Okay, We get our theology wrong and backwards. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So it's theological. They made a big mistake on who Jesus is. In 1 Timothy 6, it has to do with money. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered, that same word there, from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. They've been deceived over money. In some cases, it's immorality, just sinful lifestyle. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. Again, 
That, that's the word for deception. It's the deceiver. The one who does what is right is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. The, so the deception can have to do with theology. It could have to do with money, but it, it has to do with uh, immorality and a lifestyle. So deception can affect on many levels. It's an, it's, it affects on the level of false teaching, but also immoral lifestyle. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2. For this reason, God sent them a powerful delusion or deception so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in the wickedness. So the truth and the wickedness come together and the deception is complete and those who believe the deception um, don't have a good end. So let me just conclude. Uh, four characteristics of a deceiver that we've considered this morning. And please, uh, I thank you for your attention. This has been a difficult topic to think about. So please, let's just focus on this for one minute to consider this morning. That a deceiver is not from God, but they will hide themselves to look like they are. They've been conquered, although it won't seem like it at the time, and we need to continue to fight. People will find them believable, even though they're teaching a lie. And finally, they have wandered from the truth. They may look like us, they may have even started with us, but they have been deceived themselves and now they seek to deceive others. So in application, very briefly, be alert. Be on your guard. The deceiver may be closer than you think. Remember, John said there are many. That's why he wrote First John, to warn the church. Is there someone even today who may be seeking to deceive you? Maybe not in this church. Maybe a friend. Maybe the things that you're listening to or, the, or, or things that you're reading. Have you been deceived? Or worse yet, are you deceiving others? You know, I, I'd like to close the sermon on a positive note, but I want us to really consider the fact that there are deceivers, that we need to be aware of it, we need to deal with these situations, and we need to do it in a godly way. So the, the purpose this morning is just to draw your attention to what a deceiver would look like. But I want to assure you and remind you that, church, we are God's dear children. Church, we are from God. We are conquerors because of what Jesus has done. And even though people may find a deceiver believable, you know, we have the truth. Uh, we have the truth because we have the gospel. We have uh, God's word and we have God's spirit. And so we don't have to be afraid. So we can be thankful for that. Let me uh, close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. These are difficult uh, passages, difficult ideas for us to even wrap our mind around sometimes, Lord. I pray for mercy on your church, Lord. I pray that you would protect the church, protect Calvary um, from deceivers who would seek to draw the ministry here to one side to bring it to ruin, Lord. I pray you would protect your church. I pray that the church would be uh, um, diligent in not uh, succumbing to this, Lord. I pray that... Um, even though many false prophets have gone into the world, that you would protect uh, the church here in St. John's and in Newfoundland, Lord, and around the world. Um, draw out the deceivers, Lord. Expose them, Lord, and, and have them uh, put out from the church. We pray these things, Lord, because we want to see you glorified. We want to see you lifted up. We don't want to see uh, people deceived and, and drawn from the truth uh, by those who would seek their destruction. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that Jesus has conquered sin, that Jesus has conquered death, that he is resurrected and he lives at your right hand and we worship him today. And, Lord, we thank you for your love that you've shown to us in your Son. And so we pray your blessing on us now as we close our service. Um, we ask uh, for your presence now in Christ's name. Amen.